This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on Fox News Rewind, financial crisis, 08. Over the past seven years, we've tried to modernize the economy, and today what we're doing is modernizing the financial services industry. We are here today to repeal Glass-Steagall. The federal government clearly put out a mandate to expand home ownership. We have no interest whatsoever in putting people into houses or into rental units that they can't afford. Europeans are concerned because they bought some of the loans and their investors are worried because they don't know how many. So we had a housing boom. The first dinging that we see of some customers were not able to pay back those mortgages or pay them on time, that was toxic. This has led some homeowners to take out loans larger than they could afford. As a result, we now have an array of different market participants, often with different interests. And then you get to Bear Stearns. These guys were the gutsy ones. Bear Stearns was something else. This was an indictment against the entire industry. It was a shock to the system. Our liquidity situation deteriorated. It was a full-fledged panic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Episode 3, On the Verge. Did, uh, did Chairman Cox brief you at all about why the situation at Bear deteriorated so quickly? They, he said just a couple of days ago that they had sufficient capital. Yeah, I don't. My, my sense of it is, and again, I'm, let, me, let me wander off here and probably an area I probably should be careful of, but my sense is here it wasn't a lack of capital. It, it's, you know, it's when sort of people, if, if a handful of people head for the exit doors, <laughs> And a lot of people don't ask many questions. They just race for the exit doors. And, and I suspect maybe it was more of that than anything else. I don't know of anything else that was going on except that. And that in itself can create the problem. I mean, that's the, the age-old problem. All of a sudden, you look around and people are leaving. You don't sit around and analyze why they're going. You just decide to pack your bag and go, too. Right after Bear Stearns collapsed and, the, and, and J.P. Morgan uh, bought Bear Stearns, there had been a relief rally in a lot of the other publicly traded investment banks, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, uh, Goldman, JP Morgan, because the, the feeling was this was going to be isolated at that time. Senior advisor to Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, Gary Kaminsky. So in March of 2008, after JP Morgan uh, absorbed Bear Stearns, there had been a relief rally in the shares under the premise that that a weak competitor was out of the marketplace now, and that as a result of that, the other surviving entities would be able to deal with their own uh, balance sheet issues 
without the competitive threat of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a very weakened competitor. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I knew, I don't think anybody really thought it, when Langham Jew, I don't think anybody really thought it was, it was a very well-managed uh, institution. They, they took risks. Uh, people knew that. Former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Sheila Bear. I think people knew that. Uh, I remember I got a call early in the morning from one of our uh, FDIC people um, who had gotten a call from somebody at the New York Fed, you know, saying that uh, Bear Stearns is in trouble and might file for bankruptcy. And and I I guess that was supposed to scare us. And my comment was, well, you know, investment banks fail because investment banks do fail because we don't, you know, usually, you know, there's not a long history of bailing out investment banks. They're not. They don't have a prudential regulator. They're it's entirely reliant on market discipline and investor disclosures. And why in the world is, are the banking regulators bailing out Bear Stearns? So I, I didn't concern me. I went back to sleep, and then later in the morning, when I got up to the office, I found out oh, okay, we're doing a bailout instead. Um, initial, the initial response was the government wanted to have no response, um, and then ultimately, the government realized that it was going to be they, they were concerned going back to the collapse of a very large hedge fund years earlier, long-term capital, um, they began to become concerned that if Bear Stearns just liquidated, there was concern about the derivative effect. And so, you know, the government's role was to basically act almost like an investment banker, finding somebody to buy Bear Stearns so that they could assume the liabilities with the hope that those liabilities wouldn't spread and have a domino effect across, you know, all of the financial services world. So they acted initially as a, a matchmaker, um, you know, backstopping the transaction with J.P. Morgan to acquire the liabilities of Bear Stearns. Good afternoon, Chairman Dodd, Senator Senator Reed, Ranking Member Shelby, and members of the committee. My name is Jamie Diamond. I am the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of J.P. Morgan Chase. I appreciate the invitation to appear before you today. Mr. Chairman, your letter inviting me to testify asked me to address a number of issues relating to the J.P. Morgan Bear Stearns merger. At the outset, I want to underscore a few key points about the transaction. First, we got involved in this matter because we were asked to help prevent a Bear Stearns collapse that had the potential to cause serious damage to the financial system and the broader economy. Second, we could not and would not have assumed the substantial risks of acquiring Bear Stearns without the $30 billion facility provided by the Fed. But we wanted to help, and I believe we were the only firm ultimately in the position to help, we had to protect the interests of our shareholders. You know, to this day, I have a hard time understanding who is too big to fail or who isn't. Host of Your World on the Fox News Channel and Cavuto, coast to coast on the Fox Business Network. Neil Cavuto. The old rule of thumb would be that if you... Um, account for, let's say, half or, or more of all trading in this country, you're too big to fail. If you're AIG, the big insurer, and you account for more than half of all insurance products in this country, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating it a little bit, you're too big to fail. Uh, so people started asking that very question. What constitutes an entity that's so important to the American economy and our financial system that if it went under, we would regret it? Well, it led to a panic. Economist and Fox News contributor Steve Moore. Once Bear Stearns and some of these other big investment banks started to collapse, then it was just like dominoes falling and one after another after another. And there was a panic. It was a full-fledged panic. There was, um, there were a number of 
institutions that were in distress. Uh, most of the, the, the big ones, well, we knew Citigroup was going to have some issues, and that was the Fed was hyper, and the OCC, their two regulators, were hyper defensive about that, and we were unsuccessful in getting any kind of meaningful changes at Citi. Um, and then it got multiple bailouts, and that's kind of history. The other area where we were very concerned were the major thrifts, WAMU. There were several West Coast thrifts um, that we thought were going to be in trouble. Uh, and uh, so some of those, they did, WAMU did raise some more capital, but it wasn't nearly enough. Well, I think, uh, again, with the, with the, the challenges going on in the, uh, uh, in the economy at the time, uh, we determined that we were going to uh, raise significant additional capital to give us uh, extra cushions through it. Former CEO of Washington Mutual, Kerry Killinger. And we did subsequently successfully raise about $11 billion of new capital, and we could have had access to even more capital. Uh, uh, but we thought that was the amount that would be appropriate. Uh, when we went through that process, we also said that if we're going to raise that much new capital, uh, it, it did have a dilutive effect on our shareholders. We also needed to uh, examine if there, it was a pot, if it made more sense for our shareholders to do a merger transaction with somebody else. So we talked to a number of people, including J.P. Morgan Chase, in the spring of uh, 2008 as a backdrop or as an alternative to uh, raising new capital. Uh, our board went through a very thorough, and, and I did have very extensive discussions at the time with, uh, with J.P. Morgan Chase as, as well as others. And our board went through a thorough analysis and uh, unanimously voted with the recommendations of their investment bankers that, uh, that bringing in the new capital uh, made a lot more sense for our shareholders long term. And so we uh, proceeded with, uh, down that route rather than a merger route uh, in that spring. The message I give every time I meet with either a group of financial institutions or t talk with CEOs individually is if you think you're going to need capital, don't be looking for the government to, to to help you. If you think you're going to need capital, go raise it. You know that's that's a lesson that's uh, that's uh, it's not a new lesson. It's something anybody who's watched markets for for a long time knows that that when capital is available and capital is available today, and you're a financial institution, it's much better to raise the capital, get it in advance, and then. Uh, this will limit the downside to the overall economy. To kind of extend bailout policies were distasteful enough in the regulated, you know, commercial banking sphere into investment banking, I thought was a pretty profound and significant thing to do. And there just didn't seem to be that much appreciation, especially at the Fed. I think the Fed thought they're all big financial institutions and we got to take care of them. Chairman Dodd, Senator Shelby and other members of the committee I appreciate this opportunity to discuss the economic and financial context and the actions the Federal Reserve has taken to stabilize financial markets in the economy. Ben Bernanke was the chair of the Federal Reserve Board uh, at the time. Chief economist at Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. Former professor, very well respected in academic circles and monetary policy circles, uh, and uh, was 
the right guy at the right time uh, for this crisis. So uh, we got lucky with Ben Bernanke. Although the situation has recently improved somewhat, financial markets remain under considerable stress. Pressures in short-term bank funding markets, which had abated somewhat beginning late last year, have increased once again. Many lenders have been reluctant to provide credit to counterparties, especially leverage investors, and increase the amount of collateral they require to back short-term security financing arrangements. To meet those demands, investors have reduced their leverage and liquidated holdings of securities, putting further downward pressure on security prices. Credit availability has also been restricted because some large financial institutions, including some commercial and investment banks and the government-sponsored enterprises, have reported substantial losses and write-downs, reducing the capital they have to support new lending. Some key securitization markets, including those for non-conforming mortgages, continue to function poorly, if at all. They created the Federal Reserve in 1913, and, you know, we think of the Fed today as this kind of institution that is in charge of, like, making sure there's not a recession or fighting against inflation and messing up on inflation or unemployment. But really, the, the reason the Fed was created was to stop bank runs. Senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. John Hilsenrath. And the biggest mistakes the Fed made in the Great Depression was failing to stop bank runs. And then so, and Ben Bernanke was a historian of the Great Depression, so he looked at what happened to Bear and he said, I, I, I can't have a, a run on my watch. And so he decided to intervene. Overall, the near-term economic outlook has weakened relative to the projections released by the Federal Open Market Committee at the end of January. Inflation has also been a source of concern. We expect inflation to moderate in coming quarters, but it will be necessary to continue to monitor inflation developments carefully. Well-functioning financial markets are essential for the efficacy of monetary policy and indeed for economic growth and stability. Consistent with its role as the nation's central bank, the Federal Reserve has taken a number of steps in recent weeks to improve market liquidity and market functioning. When Bear Stearns collapsed, it was a wake-up call to a lot of people, but unfortunately not enough people, that uh, that the financial system was in serious distress. And the Fed signaled that um, in part because it facilitated the bailout of Bear Stearns. The Fed's view was that if they let Bear Stearns collapse, uh, then investors were going to start worrying about the next set of banks. Uh, and that all the worries that people had about Bear Stearns could extend to other banks like, let's say, uh, Lehman Brothers. The history of Lehman Brothers is a fascinating history of finance in the United States. Examiner of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy report, Anton Volukas. Lehman Brothers started actually in about 1850 with three brothers, three German brothers, forming a, uh, a company in Alabama that, that traded essentially in what was cotton futures. Uh, they sold bonds during the Civil War to help uh, support the Confederacy. By 1870, they had expanded their horizons and were admitted to uh, the uh, uh, New York Financial Institution. And from that point forward, became very much part of the financial picture of the United States, the institutions of the United States. By the time 1994 rolled around, Dick Foltz, who became the dominant figure in this whole the whole matter, if there's one person that you identified, Stick Fultz, had joined Lehman Brothers, had become CEO and chairman. And from that point forward, Lehman Brothers really took off as a 
investment bank. By, nine, by 2007, it was the fourth largest investment bank in the United States. Uh, to describe it would be described one of the most fin sophisticated financial institutions that ever existed. It was considered an extraordinary place to work. Dick Foltz was identified by Forbes magazine as one of the 50 top executives in the world. Uh, it did $600 billion. It was uh, at six, over $600 billion in assets. Um, did literally hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions across the world every day. 25,000 employees, uh, a place to work. The federal government would rely on Lehman Brothers for advice as to how to handle transactions, where the market was going. Truly one of the elite and premier financial institutions that have ever existed in the United States. Lehman Brothers in 2007, 2008 was on path, uh, you know, sort of a direct missile path to try to become the largest, most valuable investment bank. Um, on a daily basis, the objective was to overtake Goldman Sachs if they could uh, in any of the various businesses. Uh, investment banking, prime brokerage, retail, uh, asset management. Um, and so um, that, was, that was the culture. Uh, it was an extremely um, aggressive, uh, take no prisoners type of culture. And um, when Bear Stearns collapsed, uh, the initial reaction, I believe, within Lehman Brothers was having survived a near-death experience years early when long-term uh, capital collapsed and having a near-death experience when there was, um, um, there was a Russian, uh, there was a Russian uh, ruble crisis. Lehman had gone through many of the financial crises and come out on the other side stronger. So I think initially the belief was that um, Lehman was going to persevere and come out even stronger. Talk to me for a second about all this subprime talk, all this concern, crisis, writing it down. How is Lehman doing? Where do you stand in the scheme of things? Well, I think uh, fortunately, and, and this is true with the whole financial services industry, we're pretty much on a mark-to-market basis so that uh, daily or monthly and certainly quarterly, it finds its way into the financial statements. So uh, what pain uh, there is to be taken, people really are forced to do it within the quarter and are forced to report it. So unlike the underlying problem, which are the resets and the foreclosures, the pain is somewhat immediate. And uh, it's certainly been well publicized, the uh, special uh, write-downs that uh, that people have uh, made. They were making money hand over fist, $4 billion a year, just hauling it in. It was like they were printing money. Host of the Clayman Countdown on Fox Business, Liz Clayman. Everything was going spectacularly for Lehman Brothers. So things were all fine. The problem is, even just a one degree change, though, in whatever sector you're in, can really have massive and sometimes very dangerous and damaging ramifications. And just a month later, when Bear nearly collapsed, and had to be bailed out and bought by J.P. Morgan, then you have a situation where psychology just grips the entire sector of banking and fear just oozed all over these companies. Well, their, their first move was to go to Warren Buffett. And that was in March of 2008. And this was after, after Bear Stearns. And they went to Buffett. It was Dick Foltz went to, to Warren Buffett. We interviewed uh, Mr. Buffett and made a proposal for Buffett to make a substantial investment in Lehman Brothers. And obviously that carries a lot of cachet. 
Mr. Buffett reviewed the materials. He told us he looked at it and he was concerned because he did not think in his conversation with Dick Foles that Dick Foles was in fact living up, was looking at this thing realistically. And he asked Foles whether the executives of Lehman Brothers were willing to invest on the same basis as Warren Buffett. And Dick Foles said no. Uh, he thought that the executives were all now fully invested. And Warren Buffett, having looked at that, was not pleased with that response, did not think that Dick Foles was dealing realistically with the issues that Lehman Brothers had declined that one. Our policy in this administration is we laws shouldn't bail out lenders. Laws shouldn't uh, help speculators. Government ought to be helping creditworthy people stay in their homes. And one way we can do that, and Congress is making progress on this, is the reform of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That reform will come with a strong independent regulator. The Secretary is briefing me on on the, the progress being made on the Hill on this very important subject. Our fellow citizens have got to know that these major uh, players in the mortgage markets, uh, if reformed properly by Congress, will really help stabilize the markets and make it easier for people to stay in their homes. There were problems in the summer of 2008 that were bubbling under the surface, serious problems. One of the problems uh, was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So these were these two giant monolithic uh, mortgage companies that were like the U.S. federal government's Frankensteins. But like not only did the federal government create Frankenstein, but the federal government created Frankenstein's twin brother, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the way these two institutions worked was that um, – there was kind of this understanding on Wall Street that if something really bad happens to Fannie or Freddie, wink, wink, nod, nod, the government's going to bail them out. And that that was that sense of of having this kind of federal government behind them was a strategic advantage that they exploited to become monolithic. And, and that is that they could borrow really cheap. So they could they could borrow money cheaper than the average bank or the average investment bank. And they used those cheap loans to go out and buy up all these mortgages, including increasingly risky mortgages. As you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac play a central role in our housing finance system and must continue to do so in their current form as shareholder-owned companies. Their support for the housing market is particularly important as we work through the current housing correction. There were also questions about whether Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were taking on too much risk. Former member of the Federal Reserve Board of Directors, Randall Krosner. Because they had um, an implicit government's backstop behind them, so they had very, very little capital. So it wouldn't have taken very many losses for them to uh, to become uh, become insolvent. Meanwhile, this Fox Business Alert for you. We are hearing from our friends at the Wall Street Journal that the Treasury Department is very close now to finalizing a plan to backstop Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, the plan is expected to involve some use of the Treasury's new authority to make capital ejections. Everything came to a head uh, shortly after Labor Day. You had this kind of calm, this sense that maybe we can find our way through this uh, in the markets. Uh, in, in July and August. 
Inside the Fed, there was still a sense that things are going to get really bad. We don't know when, but things are going to get really bad. And uh, after Labor Day, um, uh, people started calling Fannie and Freddie's number. Uh, There was, once again, uh, for Fannie and Freddie borrowed money um, from the rest of of the world of finance. And people started questioning whether Fannie and Freddie were going to be able to pay back the loans they took out in order to go out and buy all these mortgages. And um, Hank Paulson came back uh, as the head of the Treasury. This was his responsibility um, to, 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 to oversee uh, Fannie and Freddie. And he came, he came back and they put Fannie and Freddie into something called government conservatorship, which is another way of saying we're taking you over. I have long said that the housing correction poses the biggest risk to our economy. It is a drag on our economic growth and at the heart of the turmoil and stress for our financial markets and financial institutions. Our economy and our markets will not recover until the bulk of this housing correction is behind us. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are critical to turning the corner on housing. Therefore, the primary missions of these enterprises now will be to proactively work to increase the availability of mortgage finance including by examining the guarantee fee structure with an eye toward mortgage affordability. As soon as he did that, he wiped out the shareholders in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and significantly uh, reduced the value of you know all the, the whatever other creditors uh, had on claims on Fannie and Freddie. And you know, doing that to Fannie and Freddie because Fannie and Freddie you know were thought to be almost arms of the government, right? There was no explicit government guarantee, but there was certainly an implicit one built into their charter. And so when investors saw that, they go, oh my gosh, you know, the, the, the government, where does the government stand here in relation to the financial system? Where are they, where's this gonna end? And that's when Lehman started to, uh, it was already shaking before Fannie and Freddie, but when Fannie and Freddie were taken over, It was an earthquake for them. President Bush never liked the idea of Fannie and Freddie being protected by the government, but only accountable to their stockholders. And while both presidential candidates support the bailout, both suggest it's in the nature of Washington lobbying that the two GSEs got too big to let fail. So by September of 2008, after Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the government-sponsored enterprises, had the government support put behind them, you might have thought that, ah, people would say, wow, that's taking care of this, this big risk and uncertainty in the, uh, in the markets and everything would stabilize. Well, it was just the opposite. What happened was that people said, oh my goodness, if the, um, if the Treasury has to provide that backstop to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, that must mean that there are a lot of problems in the housing market. Where's, where's that gonna be manifest next? Who's next? What's gonna happen next? September 9th, 2008, a deal to receive a capital infusion from Korea Development Bank fell through and Lehman Brothers shares plunged. A $5.3 billion lifeline to Lehman Brothers falls through today. The consortium of South Korean commercial banks thinking twice about the apparent risk. Lehman stock plunging almost 45% today on the news, its lowest point in about a decade. So will someone else step in to save Lehman? Maybe you, the taxpayer? Just yesterday I spoke to former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill about this. Here's what he had to say. Would so what if have, something happens with Lehman? Support. What if something happens with Lehman? You think we're going to let him go? Let him go. It's really? Okay. Yeah. 
because I think the rest of the system is sufficiently well insulated. If Lehman goes down, okay. it's, a, it's a consequence for the shareholders and for the leadership, but that's okay with me. Imagine that, former Treasury Secretary. So when it comes to Lehman, they're not Freddie Fannie, just, just let them rip. There were negotiations taking place about whether Korean banks would acquire part of Lehman Brothers to acquire part of a bank, uh, which would be a bad bank, good bank situation, etc. And those, those negotiations continued and never came to fruition. I think in large part, and I should believe this would be true, because Dick Foltz was trying to make a deal based on his belief of what would be the best deal he could get. And in that period of time, the deals just went away because Lehman Brothers' situation simply deteriorated. By September of 2008, all of these other avenues had pretty much washed out. And it was boiling down to one of two things as of the end of in, in the early September. One, could Lehman Brothers strike a deal with somebody like Bank of America or Barclays? Or two, would there be a federal bailout? People were becoming concerned that banks wouldn't be around for the next three months, that um, they had to have a, a higher rate of interest to make up for that uh, that additional risk. And so um, these uh, those borrowing costs started to go up and became more and more difficult for banks as well as the investment banks to uh, to borrow. And um, we were able to find a merger partner for, uh, for uh, Merrill Lynch. Um, Bank of America came along and uh, purchased uh, purchased Merrill Lynch and provided the capital that uh, that Merrill Lynch needed. For uh, for Lehman Brothers, Barclays, a large British bank that was headed by an American, um, really wanted to to buy uh, to buy Lehman Brothers, and we had thought that they were going to be able to do so, but then at the last minute there was uh, a pullback by the uh, the British regulators, and so um, they weren't able to uh, to do so. They had no other option. They just had nowhere to go. In fact, Barclays wanted to buy all of it. And Barclays is a foreign bank. It's a United Kingdom bank. And it was UK regulators who said, I don't know what you banks in America do and what your country's doing, but forget it. We are not going to allow our banks to attach themselves to something that looks like it's going well underwater. Another storm, you know, Sunday is D-Day for Lehman Brothers. The battered brokerage house could, could see a coordinated rescue with Uncle Sam sitting at the table. But if authorities are right, not paying for that table. My next guest says the stockholders are the ones who will probably pay the most. Bert Ely is the bank regulation guru and principal in Ely & Company. He joins us now to explain. Bert, good to have you. Uh, Glad to be here. First of all, Bert, you probably heard the authorities keep saying if, if, if something were to happen, it certainly wouldn't be a bailout. It certainly would be taxpayer money involved. Um, do you believe it? Uh, not totally. Uh, it may be that uh, there will be some type of federal involvement, uh, possibly uh, a provision of some type of uh, credit facility from the Federal Reserve, comparable to what happened uh, when Bear Stearns was resolved in March. They would like to avoid that, but when it comes down to the last minute, they may need to uh, participate in some way. Ben Bernanke uh, and Hank Paulson had a fateful decision to make. They had seen with Bear Stearns that the political system uh, had very little stomach for these bailouts. And there was one bailout after another. And just a week earlier, they had bailed out effectively Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And they decided uh, to draw a line in the sand on Lehman Brothers. Foltz had been told by Paulson, Secretary Paulson, going back as far as March of 2008, that there would be no federal bailout. And both he and Paulson concurred that that comment had been made. 
And so when Lehman Weekend came around and Secretary Paulson had called in all of the uh, top executives from major financial institutions and federal government employees, he opened the meeting by saying, there will be no federal bailout. Now, whether the people in the room believe that or not, that's how the meeting opened in Feb- and then on that Friday of Lehman Weekend. Their hope was that they could get the healthy banks of Wall Street. Ironically, almost 100 years to the day after the individual J.P. Morgan bailed out the banking system in 1907, their hope was that they could get the healthy banks on Wall Street together in a room at the New York Fed. There was a weekend of fateful meetings and get them to come up with a package to stop the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, and and there was a, game, a little bit of a game of chicken here because some of these bankers thought, well, the Fed's going to, the Fed will do it. You know, why should we expose ourselves to Lehman Brothers? The Fed will do it. And they were saying, no, we're not doing this. We're, we're not doing it this time. Right now, this breaking in the heart of New York City, the future of Lehman Brothers, one of America's largest investment banks, may be hanging by a thread. There are new signs tonight that despite the best efforts of top Wall Street executives and the Federal Reserve, Lehman may be edging closer to bankruptcy. And now we're hearing that American and foreign banks are trying right now to come up with a plan that would help shield the global financial system if Lehman goes down. Over that uh, so-called Lehman weekend, trying to provide uh, support for the uh, for the system, but the Fed couldn't provide capital to Lehman Brothers. That was not, not permitted. And uh, because Lehman didn't really have very much good collateral left, difficult to make a loan to, uh, to Lehman. Lehman Brothers is out of options. It knew it was over leveraged. It knew it was in big trouble. The books were just disintegrating before their eyes. And Bank of America, which had been in talks to buy Lehman, had to back away because it wanted the U.S. government to at least kind of help. And the government said, forget it. No can do. So on Monday, September 15th, Lehman declares bankruptcy. It weathered the Great Depression, but the credit crisis was just too much. Investment banking giant Lehman Brothers filing for bankruptcy. After nine years with the company, five in Boston, Bill Young calls it a sad day. It's been a great run, and, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, we're not done yet, but, uh, you know, clearly things are different than they were last week. Lehman crumbled under $60 billion in bad real estate debt. Another big financial, Merrill Lynch, escaped a similar fate today when Bank of America scooped the company up. I know Americans are concerned about the adjustments that are taking place in our financial markets. At the White House and throughout my administration, we're focused on them. Words of reassurance from President Bush, not enough to keep the Dow from nosediving. Down some 500 points today. Another big bite out of the average investor's retirement savings. I wouldn't panic, but I would be prepared for hard times going forward. I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. Next time on Fox News Rewind, financial crisis 08. The fabric of confidence that is essential to the viability of individual financial institutions and to market functioning, both in the U.S. and in Europe, has proved exceptionally fragile. Who's next in line to either collapse or get bailed out? And when does this game of chicken end? My administration is focused on meeting these challenges. The American people can be sure we will continue to act. We looked at each other with absolute disbelief, watching some of these stocks lose half their value in a matter of minutes.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.